So let's just take a moment to settle as we get used to this new technology. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been exploring different aspects of freedom. Freedom being the theme, not only of these talks, but freedom being the goal that all insight practice is aimed at. And yet, as we've been exploring in the last couple of weeks, for many people, what is actually meant by freedom isn't always that clear. And even if we do have some clarity about it, the actual experience of it, especially in the midst of everyday life, that freedom can seem pretty elusive. And we find our mind wandering and drifting, and suddenly the day's gone by, and oh, Like I said last time, counting those mindful moments. In the beginning, I'd count one when I woke up, and then it would be bedtime. (laughs) And that can feel very common. So last week, we were looking at the relationship between mindfulness and freedom. Mindfulness, knowing what we're doing as we're doing it, that itself is a kind of freedom. Because every moment that we're mindful, that we're aware, in that moment, even if it's just a nanosecond, we're not driven by old habits, driven by familiar patterns, driven by compulsive energies, those well-worn grooves that tend to keep the mind stuck on autopilot. And so that's why, as we were just exploring, I brought in some techniques to increase those noticings per minute throughout the day so that we can start to seed our whole day with those moments of freedom. And Ruby just mentioned Sayadaw Utejaniya. He has a, a book title that I really love. It's Mindfulness Alone is Not Enough. Mindfulness alone is not enough. So mindfulness by itself, yes, it is the first crucial stage for experiencing more ease. But mindfulness needs to be connected to understanding, to discernment, to wisdom, if it's going to support the transformative insights that lead to even deeper levels of freedom. So in the suttas, the discourses, mindfulness or sati is almost always talked about in connection with another Pali term, sampajanya. Sampajanya is usually translated as clear comprehension. And this is another huge topic. But one immediate aspect of this clear comprehension is comprehending whether what we're doing is skillful or unskillful. In other words, is this experience leading to harm, to stress, to distress, to suffering, to dukkha? Or the opposite, is it supporting healing and ease and well-being and contentment and, yes, freedom. And this discernment of clear comprehension is something we need to bring not only to the present moment, as we were exploring in the last couple of weeks, but also to the bigger time frame of what we're doing day to day, week to week, month to month, Because these repeated actions and repeated intentions are shaping our entire lives. 
So last week we were focusing more on the small scale, on the noticings per minute. So this evening I'd like to zoom out and to explore what are we doing with our lives as a whole in the bigger picture. So just as a way into that, I'd like to come back to that same quote that I've shared actually in the last two talks, the quote about mindfulness being a path to the deathless. This time I'm going to use a slightly different translation, where mindfulness is translated as heedfulness. So heedfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The heedful do not die. The heedless are as if already dead. So there's a lot in that. That's why I keep bringing it back. But remembering that the deathless is another term for nibbana, or ultimate freedom. And the reference to those without mindfulness being as if already dead, I'm translating as being like zombies. So just stumbling through life, purposeless, directionless, without any real meaning or value to that life. And so bringing this into the bigger picture of our lives as a whole, even though I haven't met all of you, I'm assuming, most of you here probably don't think of yourself as zombies. Is that a fair assumption? I think most of you probably have some aspiration to live with more kindness, with more compassion, with more clarity, with more consciousness, or you probably wouldn't be here. But still, I think it's fair to say that all of us here, in spite of those aspirations, we're also affected by the everyday pressures of our lives, just to survive, to live our lives, to take care of ourselves, to take care of our families, to pay our bills, just the day-to-day -day realities. And also, all of us are affected by powerful currents of mainstream values that often go in the opposite direction of where this path is leading. And those powerful currents of mainstream values can conspire to keep us complacent, to, stuck, to keep us stuck in the status quo, or to bring that analogy back from a few weeks ago, the hamster wheel of life. So you may remember in that first week, I talked about the Tibetan Buddhist wheel of life. And at the center of that spinning out are three animals, the cock, the snake, the pig. And these three animals represent greed or compulsion, hatred or aversion, and ignorance or delusion. And those three core afflictive energies are understood as what keep us just spinning out in the same old, same old court in looping over the same patterns, same habits, and so on. And there's one key form of delusion or ignorance that I think tends to fuel complacency. That basic delusion that, yeah, we'll just get to it later. Yeah, I'll get to that later, whatever it might be. So for the purpose of this talk, I'll think of it as being our good intentions whether those good intentions are to maybe deepen our meditation practice, maybe to live more ethically, more consciously, maybe to go on retreat. We have a pulse of motivation to do those things. And then what often happens? 
just the momentum of everyday life takes over. And we consciously or unconsciously assume, okay, I'll get back to that. We assume we've got plenty of time, that our energy will always be there, that the resources, the health, the money, and so on will be there so we can do it later. And I've seen this in my own practice too. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that when, when I'm, not, I'm just not so busy at work. I'll do that when I've got more energy or when my health is better or when I have more financial resources, when I have fewer family obligations and so on and so on. But I also know from my own experience that if I keep waiting for the perfect time to get started with all this, I could be waiting a really long time. And who knows if I actually do have as much time as my unconscious tells me that I do. So now we're coming into one of the most fundamental core delusions of them all. The delusion that we are immortal. <laughs> of course, I'm kind of joking because, you know, we all know intellectually, yes, of course, that's not true. It's a fact of life, or actually a fact of death, that we have limited time. But there are some very strong protective mechanisms in our psyches that for most of us, most of the time, prevent us from really taking in that reality. And those same protective mechanisms also prevent us from living our lives more fully. So as I think most of you know, contemplating our own mortality was actually something the Buddha advised all of his followers to do every single day, to keep in mind the truth of impermanence, of change, of instability, and to really know that truth in relation to our own being, that this body, too, is going to die. So in the Buddha's discourses, there's a chant that people are invited to reflect on, reflect on every day, and it's called the Five Subjects for Frequent Recollection. Have any of you here practiced with that? Yeah. It's uh, fairly common in, uh, in these circles. So even if you've heard the words before, when I read them to you again in a moment, just slowly, I invite you to notice what happens, any responses or reactions in the body, the heart, the mind. And if there are some reactions or responses, just see if you can notice them without judgment, because it's actually useful information information that can reveal where may the, there might be some clinging, some resistance, might reveal some places where actually we're not so free at this point. And possible might reveal places where there is some ease and some acceptance, where there is some degree of freedom. Okay, so here's the words from the recollection. I'm of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, 
will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So, as um, Kirsty was just asking, maybe some others of you are wondering, well, how does contemplating my own death support freedom? And, you know, this is very personal. I can't answer that for any of you. But in my own practice, it really helped to cut through some layers of complacency that were so deep, I hardly even knew they were there. And just touching in to the truth of this body's impermanence, helped to reveal some of the ways that I was really resisting that understanding and all the ways that I was clinging to all kinds of other actually futile strategies that ultimately are not going to help. So for me, contemplation of death was really powerfully revealing where and how am I not free. (laughs) And it also motivates me to do something about those areas of my life where I'm maybe not living quite so much in alignment with my deeper aspirations. Where is my energy getting frittered and wasted and swept away in the months and the years go by and, yeah, I didn't quite get there. And where am I not really living with the integrity that I aspire to? And what I found was that death really helped to sharpen that resolve. And when there was more living in alignment with those deeper values, there was more energy because it was like there wasn't a wind drag or a sea anchor or um, energy being wasted and frittered away or blocked. And often that energy of bracing against the fear of death takes a surprising amount of effort to maintain. And it's only when it's released to whatever extent it is released that we realize, wow, there's more, of ener- more energy is now available. So just, you know, this is a vast topic, but if you're interested in exploring this a little bit, just at the end of the day as you're lying down, getting ready to sleep, you might just ask, if I did die tonight, is there anything I'd regret So this body for sure will die. But how we lived our lives has an effect on other people. And so we can reflect what kind of memories and impressions and impacts do we want to have on other people? What do we want our life's legacy to be? And the more we can engage with these questions now while we still have time, the less likely we'll be to experience regret in the latter stages of our life. So as many of you know, regret is one of the most common emotions for people at the end of their lives, which is pretty sad. And I think I may have mentioned in a previous talk here a while back, there was an Australian palliative care nurse called Bronnie Ware. And a few years ago, she published a book called The Top 
five regrets of the dying. And she described having been in that position and just seeing the phenomenal clarity of vision that people often had at the end of their lives. And she wanted to offer a way of learning from that wisdom. And she said when people were asked about any regrets they had or anything they would do differently, there were common themes that came up for people again and again. And the number one regret that she heard was, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life that other people expected of me. And that nurse, Bronnie Ware, said this was the most common regret of all. When people realize that their life is almost over and they look back clearly on it, it's easy to see how many dreams have gone unfulfilled. Most people had not honored even a half of their dreams, and they had to die knowing that that was due to choices that they'd made or not made. And she said health brings a freedom that very few people realize until they no longer have it. Now, I know that some of you here have had those kind of intense wake-up calls. You may have had to navigate phases of being injured or seriously ill. Even if so far you've managed to escape some of those major difficulties, all of us here are aging, and none of us know when we might have to face the next serious health challenge. And of course, for sure, every one of us is going to die. So I think it's worth hearing from other people who've had to face that reality. I don't know if any of you saw, but in the Guardian newspaper a few days ago, they had an article called Advice from 30 People Who Really Started Living When They Found Out They Were Dying. Uh, it's very powerful. It interviews 30 people from all over the world who are in the process of dying from things like advanced cancer or neurogenerative diseases. And I don't know about for you, but one of the reasons I, um, I always appreciate hearing the perspectives of people in those situations, because they're not generally voices that are given much space in mainstream, everyday society. And that was one of the reasons that I did hospice work, and some of you here have done hospice work to be able to be with people at that phase of life. And it can feel like those dying people are calling out to us and trying to get us to step out of our complacency and our delusion. And in some ways they're offering us a kind of gift, almost like, wake up, wake up. And I think it's worth listening carefully. So I just wanted to share a couple of short stories from that article. This is from a 40-year-old woman in Manchester in the UK. And apparently in 2015, Marie Isdale, when she was 31, was diagnosed with stage 4 bowel cancer. She was given 18 months to live. And despite a period of remission and 170 rounds of chemotherapy, which I can't even imagine, the disease has spread to her lymph nodes. And she says... I always thought, well, I'll get my career sorted, then we'll get married, and we'll have children, and we'll go traveling, and then cancer happened. And you grieve for your future self, your imagined children and your career. If I died tomorrow, what I'd be saying on my deathbed is, 
I regret not spending enough time with my family. So that's what I focus on now. My illness has changed the way I prioritize things. Although I loved my career as a doctor, it often meant long hours, missing out on Christmases and birthdays and exams, and giving that up is a big sacrifice, but it's one I'm willing to make to gain more time with my loved ones. It's ironic that it took being told that I was dying before I really started living. And that last statement really struck me. It's ironic that it being told that I was dying before I really started living. And in the small amount of work I've done with dying people, that's also a common theme. That their illness somehow gives them permission to live the way they'd always wanted to live. And again, it's kind of sad that we feel like we need permission to do that. And I think it just points to the peer group pressure and the societal norms that we're all swimming in and how much courage it actually takes to go against those pressures and norms. And I'm guessing many of you felt that in relation to smaller things, maybe things like not drinking alcohol or taking greater care with speaking honestly and kindly or being open to talking about death and dying when people around you don't want to. (laughs) I remember early on naively trying to have a conversation with my mother about the fact that she was aging and she just said, we don't talk about that in our family. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) So this is another area where having a sangha, a community like this, can be a real refuge where we don't feel perhaps quite as strange or weird, and we have the freedom to be open about our deeper values and our life aspirations. And pretty much everyone in that Guardian article spoke about it was their connection with other people that was the single most important aspect of their lives, and how their illness really showed them how important it was to prioritize those relationships. And again, the values of mainstream society, they often push us in the opposite direction. For many people, sadly, being totally independent is something to aspire to. Fiercely independent. And in some ways, I wonder if that's why there's an epidemic of people feeling isolated and lonely because we've bought into this myth that we should be able to just stand alone and be alone and do everything for ourselves. And this, as I think we all know, is pretty unhealthy, in particular at the end of life. So another person who was Chanel Hobbs from the US at 37, she suddenly found herself unable to run without falling. And she was diagnosed with ALS, sometimes known as motor neuron disease, and was told she had a life expectancy of maybe five years. She's actually 53, so she did a lot better, but she's now dependent on a ventilator and a feeding tube to survive. And she says, before my diagnosis, I was very independent. I prided myself on being able to do things on my own. But I've learned that others really want to assist, and it brings them joy knowing they can make a difference, however small. And this was something I heard from a friend in the U.S. who died from cancer. She also had been brought up to be fiercely independent. 
And even though she couldn't work anymore because her illness progressed pretty quickly, she felt so much shame in taking a sickness beneficiary. And she said every time she saw that money in her account, she would hear her father's voice talking about, I don't know, whatever words he used, but very derogatory. And so it was really tough for her to accept help from anyone. And then eventually she realized that if the tables had been turned, if it was a friend of hers who needed that support, she would have really wanted to offer that help. And she would have been happy to help people in that situation. And so she started to be able to let in more and more support like that. And she saw that people actually really appreciated being able to do even the smallest things for her. And in a way, it was almost an act of service from her to them as it was the other way around. So again, this is a huge theme, and I'm just kind of touching into a few droplets here. And we can continue exploring it after the break and maybe in future sessions. But I want to leave it there for now so that we have time for a little bit of a a break and then we can have some group discussion afterwards. So thank you for your attention. So before we push it again, 